0: Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Nice to have the gang back together again this week.
1: We've got the whole squad in the booth. Very good.
0: Yeah, um, and because the gang's all back together again, we're going to do the show just us hosts today.
1: Mm -hmm. It'll be fun. Yeah, um, I was hanging out with some big listeners this last weekend. A few, a uh, few members of my family, and they they nice. noted. I wanted to mention up top. They noted that that we, you know, sometimes you say like when you agree with someone, mm-hmm. you you say like, oh, hundred percent, hundred percent agree. Yeah, and we we've started escalating that to <laughs> to now where we're saying like that like oh, thousand percent, I get it, I get it. Million percent, totally. Million percent. Yeah.
0: You know, guys, we say a lot of things where we're like, "Yeah, that's spot on." I kind of like that we've upped the ante.
1: I think we have to. I think we have to maybe shoot for a for a, a billion percent this week, or you know, into to tr- I don't know. I, Great. Uh, like I don't know how high we can go, but um, we should give, limit. give it a shot. See,
2: in my house, instead of like escalating, we we abbreviate mm. like 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 typical millennials. Like my wife and I are now saying "hundo p."
0: Oh, that's,
2: that's hundo that's, p
0: that's a bridge too far for me I'm, hundo that cannot become yeah. part of the that's, show that, canon. That, 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 that's real
2: can't. that actually that <laughs> happens. Yeah, that's, so that's good. good
1: all right well we have a very very full show today what with uh the we have a large supreme court preview the final the final three weeks the mad dash to i'm the so finish. excited to talk yeah. about
0: it yeah we're gonna actually kind of have a fun take on it where we run down our top nine
2: there's, yeah, there's there's lots of stuff going on, and we thought it would be good to just sort of orient people about you know sort of what's left and yep. what's what's important to know. So yeah, we're all, all three of us are going to run the weave on that. Um,
1: but before, before we get to this, that, we've got some yes. uh, some pressing news matters. Uh, it's true. Some NBA finals news.
2: It's great. Uh, it involves Kawhi Leonard, who is uh, currently
1: you know doing his best to outwit the the dastardly and vile Warriors. So right in the middle, yeah. right in the middle of the NBA finals, Kawhi Leonard uh, filed a about a lawsuit against Nike over to his personal logo yes a, an image of like his hand with his well, well, we'll, we'll get into it we'll talk about the logo in a second yes yeah. it's
2: well
0: could we back up for dumb non-sports Amber uh who is he again and and what's
2: his deal I
1: mean I I think Alex must take this well as the bigger well NBA first of all fan the booth
2: well bill can just desc- I mean you how would you describe him if you could if you could choose like two words I mean I think he's a He's a fun guy. <laughs> yes, he's uh, uh, he is like probably like, he plays for the Raptors. He's a forward for the Toronto Raptors, who, as Bill says, is in the finals, and he's kind of like one of the most cryptic, like big time NBA superstars. He like famously like says almost nothing, like even by the, the standards of athletes who say like broad platitudes. Um, very introverted, kind of okay. unknowable, and that's why it was actually so interesting that he was at the center of like he's not only playing in the finals, but is now at the center of this like. Brewing legal drama. So right, let's talk more about it.
1: it. It's it's pretty interesting, just from the facts of like middle of the NBA finals. The Definitely, IA superstar is suing Hundo P. Nike. Yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's a, that's a callback. Ladies okay, and yes, gentlemen. yes. Um, but it's also sort of a weird mix of like different types of IP that people sometimes confuse, but actually both exist in this case. Yes. So it's um, it's a good one.
2: Yeah. Well, let I mean, this is a good time as any to talk about the actual logo. Uh, which this is a podcast; it's a uh, audio format. But you should Google it. This has nothing to do with the merits of the case. One of the weirdest and possibly ugliest
1: logos I've ever seen. It's strange. It's, a, some... it's, a, it's definitely strange. Yeah. It's like, it, looks, like, it looks sort of like a like a Thanksgiving turkey that you you drew, like you traced your hands. Yes. So, well, but that's um,
0: part of a good logo, right? That it's instantly recognizable. You know what it is. That much is
1: true. <sighs> sure.
2: Uh, and he, he has famously big hands. He's like a good... good. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll also... Trust me, we'll get to okay. that. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Um, yes, yes, yes. And it, it incorporates, like within the sort of imagery of his fingers on the yeah. hand, yeah. it incorporates his...
1: Uh, initials and his number. Number two, yeah. right. So yeah. the backstory here is that he was under contract with Nike as an endorsement uh, athlete from 2011 to 2018. Um, this logo of his appeared on Nike stuff. He says that he created the logo himself when he was in college. It shows. Sorry. <laughs> 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 uh, um, and, and then, you know, that when he signed with Nike, he allowed them to use the logo, but that... He had created it and that it was his and, and it's his personal logo mm-hmm. um, that he remained the owner of the design. And n- at no point did, did this become like a Nike logo that was on. It wasn't like the Jordan, the Air Jordan logo that is like the a Jump Nike Man. product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm.
0: So I got the lay of the land here about this logo and everything and that it was on Nike products. Mm-hmm. How do we get to a lawsuit here, though?
1: So um, according to the lawsuit that Leonard filed this week, um Nike, without his knowledge, went and registered the design as a copyright. Um, They said that they had come up with it and that that they went and got this, got got copyright protection over it. Um, He says that that he plans to now use the design. He like he doesn't say so explicitly, but he has switched over to New Balance. Okay. Um, and he says he wants to use the design on merchandise and everything like that, but that Nike has now threatened him with a copyright lawsuit if he uses the design himself.
0: All right, let's stop right there, because I've been training some new reporters this week, and one of the first things I tell them is, like, if you see logos... Think trademark, yeah. <laughs> not copyright. What's up?
1: It's the bane of my existence. that uh, When people, people are mixing it up all the time. People mix up those two things. I believe I've done it on this very airwaves. So, as you mentioned, Amber, trademarks, th- things when you're dealing with logos, you're dealing with company designs, that yeah. is far, far more often the domain of trademark law, which is designed to like, it's not really intellectual property, it's more like Brand a consumer protection, protection yeah. law that's designed to keep consumers from confusing two different companies. Yeah. Um, Far more often, copyright law, it deals with artwork, deals with uh, sure. creative expression. It, mm-hmm. is, it is it is an intellectual property and it's designed to incentivize people to come up with more creative stuff. It gives you a monopoly over it for a certain amount of time. Yeah. So this case deals with both in a sort of confusing way, like I said, because um, people confuse those two things all the time. L- Leonard... So he he says that Nike went out and fraudulently got this copyright on his design. He went out and got a trademark registration on the design, which is more more the appropriate thing that you're right, supposed that's to do the with a logo. Thing it's an, it's, it's a logo. Exactly, yeah, right, and yeah. the, co- the trademark office registered the design as his trademark. And um, you know, so I mean, from Kawhi's perspective, he, he probably is thinking like you know, or from his attorney's perspective, the reason we didn't know Nike was going out and registering this as a copyright is because like it's kinda weird. weird to go out and yeah. register a logo as a copyright. Um so like I said, it's a weird situation. It's it's you have you have Nike owning the copyright to a logo and you yeah. have the the individual athlete owning the trademark registration to yes. a logo. So it's yes. a weird sort of mishmash of these two things. I
0: kinda love that. Yeah, it's it's a it'll be an interesting showdown between those two IP rights. It will. So there's there's yeah, some other interesting yeah.
1: stuff in the case? There's you know, he the the complaint seems to indicate that that Leonard believes that there's this like sort of paper trail that shows that that you know he never really signed us over to Nike. That that shows that he created it. That that he was instrumental in in making this logo and telling them that they could use it and that that they referred to it as like the the Kawhi logo and yeah. All this kind of stuff. Um, he also says that, like during his years at Nike, he used this design on other products that weren't Nike products, um, uh-huh. like for charities and for different fundraising things. So, yeah. from a trademark law perspective, that's an interesting thing because it shows that it doesn't necessarily this logo doesn't necessarily like point consumers toward Nike. It points right. them toward Kawhi himself. Um, and then, I, I mean. There's just a really, really good quote from, from the that I that <laughs> I, I, I
2: know, I, I, I stepped on it a little bit, but but let's yeah, let's let's get after
1: it's it. It's fine. Yeah. Um <clears throat> quote Leonard is known for his extremely large hands, period. Throughout his career, spectators have noticed Leonard's large hands, and they are often described as contributing to his success as a player. <laughs>
2: I watch a lot of NBA. I can confirm that. I don't mean, I'm I'm not a judge. I, I'm not a trier of fact, but that's 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 pretty ironclad.
1: Don't let anyone tell you that lawyers can't write interesting copy. <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Bill. Uh, I think it's only appropriate we move from
2: a uh, an NBA star who doesn't like to draw a lot of attention to himself, caught in a litigation battle to. Uh, Sort of an entire religion of individuals who don't often draw a lot of attention uh, to themselves. Terrific, caught up in a Terrific. I, I didn't segue. know
0: how we'd connect the two of those, but that was perfect.
2: Yeah, I, I don't impressed. mean to be glib. This is uh, this is uh, actually a really interesting story. This um uh, this deals with the Amish is is yeah. is what I'm referencing. Um, this is the story um uh, out of Indiana. A story of an Amish woman who uh filed papers to become a United States citizen. And got into um, a legal battle um, that's that grew out of her refusal to have her picture taken um, under her, her, uh, her beliefs sort of, you know, prohibited, uh, you know, as everyone knows, Amish sort of resist modern technology and drawing attention to themselves, she couldn't get her picture taken. Um, And this was a a long back and forth with the government over whether she had the right to do that. Um, The government actually settled that case uh, recently. um, But Emma Cueto wrote a great story about the whole uh, affair for our access to Justice Wire, which everybody should read, um, and took uh, kind of a broader look, not just at this case, but at the the, the Amish community's relationship with the legal system generally. It was very interesting.
0: Well, let's talk about this woman specifically and what happened to her. Give us sort of the lay of the land here.
2: Alright, so um, this this woman, and we're going to have to keep saying this Amish woman because uh, also in line with her uh, religious beliefs, her and her husband filed the case anonymously because they did not want to – they, 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 they would find calling attention to themselves in a lawsuit to be decadent and to, you know, attention-grabbing, things mm-hmm. like that. So they filed as John and Jane Doe. Um, the woman came to the United States uh, some years ago from Canada. She was part of an Amish community in Canada. She came to Indiana to marry – uh, this man in a, in the Amish community there. Uh, in 2015, um, she applied for permanent citizenship status. And of course, if you're from another country and you marry a citizen, her husband was, that's usually a pretty pro forma process. You know, you fill out a couple of forms, you get your picture taken, uh, and then it's mostly, uh, you know, check a couple boxes and you're done. Uh, she refused to have her photo taken for her new ID. Um, and, uh, The government sort of pushed back against this and said, this is part of the process. You know, you have to do this. And she sort of held firm. And there was a lot of push and pull with the government, uh, with with customs and things like that. Um, And eventually got to the point where um, her and her family, uh, they have 13 kids. Well, uh, uh, in this community. Well, he had he had 11 kids from his first marriage and then they, okay. they got married and had two more kids. Got to the point where they were either going to be separated or all of them would have to relocate to Canada. So it was a pretty sort of, it, it went from just kind of a, a clerical battle to a serious uh, thing about the status of this family.
0: This has so many tendrils of other things we talk about. It's like the dire consequences of immigration battles. It's got some... Um, equal protection of the laws depending on your religion it's really got a lot going on
2: definitely and we didn't get um sort of closure on the legal question because while most of this was just handled through you know sort of letters and direct communication with the government the woman eventually decided to to get a lawyer and lawyer up and shortly thereafter they she struck uh, a settlement with the federal government that said um, that allowed her to become a citizen Um, she did not have to get her picture taken. They made a deal where she could be identified uh, using fingerprints Mm. Uh, instead of her photo. Um, But yeah, it was a fascinating dynamic playing. It's It's
0: really surprising to me that this hasn't ever come up before for someone to um, need a religious accommodation over this photo thing, because I I don't think the Amish are the only religion that has that prohibition. No, it's
1: true. And, and you know, we hear all the time I mean, it's it's just interesting that it hits on the Amish because we, yeah. we you know we we hear about the interplay between the legal system and religion all the time. We're going to talk about it in a few minutes. We are, yes, um, um,
2: yeah. But this is uh, and this is really interesting. And again, everybody should go read Emma's story. It's in front of the paywall. Um, throughout the story is just sort of a, the a few of the bedrock Amish community beliefs. Um, the one of the core principles there, of course, is the concept of nonviolence and nonaggression and there is a, a a strain of thought within the Amish community that like merely participating in lawsuits is an act of aggression hmm. to say nothing of bringing one yourself i
0: mean we do talk about our us legal system being adversarial i mean that's how it's set up yeah. so that makes a lot of and sense I and mean, the
2: Amish the Amish people are, are both obviously not aggressive so they don't bring a lot of lawsuits they also don't have they they're not a people of means so they aren't they're not targeted for lawsuits right so that's why this stuff doesn't bubble up that much but Emma talked to a Reed Smith attorney who helped the couple in this case and he was basically talking about how how much of a, a struggle it was to get them to just decide to file a case they said if, yeah. you, if you file a case we might it, it, we would probably have pretty good Footing here, uh, and he was right because eventually that happened, and he sure. had, you know and this is a, a quote from Emma's story from from the attorney. He said, that is something that really frustrated me. Nothing changed between the time we started and the time we ended, other than that we filed litigation. Mm. So uh, this was pretty controversial, though, she was saying, sort of within the community of for them to participate in this. Well,
1: work. it hits on something that we've talked about which is like you know self-selecting yourself out of the legal system out of you know for any number of reasons but when you opt out you 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 lose the protections that sort of come with with the system which is the government is is was more willing to play ball the minute you threatened to use the system so
2: definitely and the act of threatening the lawsuit or whatever or whatever taking action in this regard was you know like i said it was a hot button issue in the community um but uh you know it got a good result for the couple in this case
0: Our main segment today, we're talking about one of my favorite things the Supreme Court, um, those guys again. Yeah, I mean, I can't get enough of them, and so, ladies. It is June, and the whole term's set to end on the 24th, unless it gets extended, which sometimes it can, but that's mm-hmm. the presumed end date. So yes. now that we're counting down, we're gonna run down through the things everybody should be watching.
1: Yeah, we got a few this week. Um, the uh, the I think the big one was that it was um, the you know, making it tougher for like lost discrimination lawsuits to get tossed out. They they made it easier to bring those kind of cases. Yes. But even with the rulings that we got this week, we're only at forty two for the term, mm-hmm. um, meaning that there are uh, you know and. and don't get me wrong. We've seen some big ones. We've seen the, it was the civil asset forfeiture one that we talked yep. about on the show. Um, uh, multiple arbitration cases. The, yes. Uh, Those are favorite, always important. Favorite subject yeah. of the court. Um, a couple of esoteric copyright rulings. Which
2: you had to write about and weren't thrilled.
1: Really didn't care much about. <laughs> say, um, and, and
2: they just took up another one. I was like, what are all these copyright I cases? Know, it's bizarre.
1: <laughs> um, and uh, and then we saw the big ruling, the Big Apple ruling that, yes. we, that we talked about Yeah, that antitrust ago. one, um, sure. But, but but with three weeks left, uh, and Amber, as you said, they are sometimes a little squishy with that. They can add they can add intervening opinion days. They yep. can add more to the end. But um, we're still waiting on 27 uh, decisions yeah. in pending cases. Um, Roberts but, didn't seem too concerned
2: when we played that. We, 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 it's didn't. true. When, when we were and at the uh, conference a couple it weeks ago. It makes
0: sense, though, because we sort of have this game every year. There's always a lot know, of things yeah. in the final month of the term.
1: Completely. Yeah. and I mean, they are... I mean, they are making law, so they are negotiating in the background for, like, who is going to do what, like, what opinion and, and you know, who trying to get people to come over to their side and, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but, I mean, we really haven't gotten any of the really huge ones that we've been eyeing That's all right. term, um, including which we're going to talk about in a second. But um, uh, Gundy v. United States is the longest pending one that was argued way, 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 way back on um, October 2nd. So- it's so
0: long ago that... Uh, you and I, Bill, made a video explaining it
1: last summer.
0: Last summer, <laughs> I know it's I gonna I feel like this case has yeah. been with us forever. Yeah,
1: everyone should go check out the video. It was nice and tan. Yeah, and right. lovely. Um, Wait, I mean, you're tan now. This is, but this is a whole other summer it's trip. Come back again. around. It's yes, true. Yes. It's true. Um, uh, Again, audio medium. People can't tell. Who knows? <laughs> Take my word for it. Yep, he looks beautiful, uh, bronzed and beautiful.
0: So, um, what we wanted to do today, since we have so many big ones left, mm-hmm. is literally a countdown. And what better number for Supreme Court things than nine? Yeah. Yeah, and this was a
1: really scientific ranking. We went through and, you know, really just dug deep, assigned numbers to various. We did. I'm kidding. This is uh, this is really just an, an assessment of uh, sort of a ranking of, of cases that we think are really important and we're waiting on and we wanted to talk about the most. Where's Carson Definitely. Daly when you need him to do <laughs> Supreme Court TRL? That's what so we're doing right here. Coming in at number nine. A case near and dear to my heart, uh, Iancu v Brunetti, which is the case about profane trademarks.
0: Another case that you and I did a video about.
1: So it is a um, it's a free speech challenge to this weird old rule that says the government uh, uh, shouldn't register trademarks for things on on offensive material. Th- uh, on it, the, the terms are scandalous and yes, yes, very funny to say every time you say it. Um, it comes on the rule on the heels of a ruling two summers ago which everyone probably remembers that struck down on on similar grounds a ban on racist trademarks. Um, yeah. th- that was the case involving the Redskins and that band called the Slants. Yeah. And um, so, you know, the question now is whether or not this rule also falls for the same reasons. Um, there's all sorts of sort of in the weeds reasons for why it might and why it might not, but it's definitely one that that I as a trademark person am watching, but everyone, just because it's a big fun, splashy case, is also watching. I'm waiting to see if my head-ass trademark will go through, because <laughs> this is very important. very nature. important. Great.
2: Uh, so on to number eight. Eight, and it uh, should be clear, we're gonna we're gonna pop through a couple of these the, these uh, first few of these in pretty perfunctory fashion, get you up to speed on what you need to know. Then we'll go deep on uh, on on the last three, I think. Yeah, I guess, top what, three. But we've considered the sort of standout, the stars of the term. Um, and anyway, to number eight, uh, this case deals with double jeopardy. Ashley Judd murdered her husband, <laughs> and then it turned out that he faked his death. It's crazy. No, uh, this is about Double Jeopardy, the bedrock legal principle that says you cannot be prosecuted uh, twice for the same crime or multiple times for the same crime. And this case is Gamble v. United States. Yes, yeah, thank system. you. Yep. It, Gamble v. United States is the name. Um, this is a very sort of simple concept uh, that's pretty easy to understand. However, there's a wrinkle. Um, for a long time, it has been, there have been uh, decisions on the books that allow for uh, the federal government to prosecute you for a case and for state governments to prosecute you for the same case, yeah, um, and that is what the uh, the man at the center of this case, Terrence Gamble, is trying to undo. He is from Alabama. He was pulled over uh, and uh, charged with uh, illegal possession of a weapon. He had a handgun on him. The state charged him for uh, one year in prison for that crime. And while that was going on, the federal government conducted its own concurrent. Um, investigation gave him 46 months in prison so Mm -hmm. he's looking at an additional 34 months in prison because of these two separate prosecutions um this is the idea that the federal government and the state government are separate sovereigns that's the term of art here when you're talking about Double double jeopardy in this regard. Uh, Gamble is arguing that that should not be allowed to be the case. That is a violation of the Fifth Amendment. Um, He faced some pretty stern pushback at oral arguments. The justices didn't seem too eager to overturn um, sort of decades worth of
1: uh, precedent in that regard. Well, and because we talked about this on the, we had a whole episode on this, and and Mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of longstanding policy for why that you know why that exists. That it's it's you know it serves it serves a purpose to have. To be able to prosecute people who, yeah. Definitely.
2: So uh, the criminal bar, very eager to see that one. That's Gamble v. United States.
1: Number seven Number is seven. Uh, American Legion v. American Humanist, which is um, I feel like if we were making a movie about the Supreme Court, this is like a just like a it's like a boilerplate Supreme Court. Case. Oh, sure. It's just like a it's a First Amendment case over a giant cross and whether or not that's like
0: yeah church and state. <laughs> exactly. Us...
1: Um, but yeah. So like Amber said, it's um, it's a separation of church and state case. Um, it's a there's this veterans group who is uh, fighting on behalf of this 38 foot tall cross shaped First World War Memorial that's in uh, Maryland and the Fourth Circuit, uh, a lower appeals court ruled last year that the monument violated the the First Amendment, that it, um, you know, it favored Christianity over other religions. Um, What the high court is going to figure out here is whether or not the court, whether that lower court and lower courts in general, um, you know, whether that was too exacting of a of a. Of a approach when it comes to the Establishment Clause, that you know that, that there's this passive monument that's been there. Yep. It, you know, should they have take pulled back a little bit when they when they did that? There was very interesting arguments in the case. Um, you know, set, like pushing at the, pushing at both sides. So, um, it will be a a very interesting one. Um, we always love to see these you know these these big religious questions at the at the high court.
0: And that brings us on to number six. Um, the one I'm talking about is Virginia House of Delegates versus Bethune Hill. So, remember um, last year when gerrymandering was at the high court? (laughs) Yes, of course. course. Um, I like that you giggled at my correct pronunciation, according to Justice Roberts. Yeah. Well, it's back in a few forms this year, and this one is um, challenging a map drawn for the 2011 Virginia House of Delegates. Mm -hmm. A group of African-American voters say that the state legislature relied too much on race when it drew that electoral map. Um, That would violate the Constitution. There's pretty clear prohibition against racial gerrymandering. So, the state legislators who are defending this map, they do acknowledge that race was considered, but they say it was just one of many factors and it wasn't the only one, so it should be allowed.
2: Just sliding in at number five is a cool jam about the limits of administrative power. Uh, no, at number five, we have uh, – I was trying to go back to the radio format uh, – is Kaiser V. Wilkie. Um, and this is nominally about a man, a Vietnam veteran, who uh, was denied disability benefits by the Veterans Administration. Uh, but there's so much more at stake, as there often is, um, and it it deals with the extent to which – Courts should defer to executive branch agencies as they implement their often complex and ambiguous rulings. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of the limits of executive power is something that has bubbled up a lot in conservative circles, especially since President Trump had appointed two more conservative justices. A lot of conservative lawyers and jurists have expressed um, sort of re- concerns and reservations that. Courts have ha, are, are too deferential, and there's basically like a fourth, you know, sort of administrative branch of government popping mm-hmm. up. They don't like that. Uh, Justice Gorsuch in uh, in particular has been eager uh, to sort of rein that in. There's a couple different precedents that enshrine this, this deference uh, on the books, and that is sort of what is squarely in the crosshairs here. That's uh, Kaiser v. Wilkie.
0: At number four, I'm back on this gerrymandering beat again. Mm-hmm. Back to gerrymandering. With a pair of cases. Rucho versus Common Cause and Lamone versus Benisek.
1: And now, to be clear, this is now partisan gerrymandering rather than right. racial gerrymandering. Right, right.
0: That's why this one is different. The pair of cases um, on the list are about state officials in two states North Carolina, that was drawing maps, um, Republicans were drawing them, and Maryland, where some Democrats were drawing electoral maps, that allegedly went too far in taking political affiliation into account when they were creating these maps. So. I've referenced this uh, when I was talking about gerrymandering a few minutes ago, but the court has taken up gerrymandering cases before, mm-hmm. and um, partisan gerrymandering came up. But the justices sidestepped the yeah. actual merits of that case before. Yeah. It was a, kind of a big letdown when we talked about on right. the show that we wanted to hear more from what the justices' take would be. This time around, it seems likely that they're not going to duck it the same way. And instead, they're going to have to decide if they should leave this partisan gerrymandering problem up to Congress to fix, which is one argument mm-hmm. of how it should be handled, or if they should come up with some test for when a district's been drawn with politics too much in mind.
1: And we should say, this is this is a strong number four. This was, this was one we could have talked about a little more in depth about. It's a really interesting case. Everyone should go read about it. It's just a strong year in
2: general for cases that have implications for electoral map drawing, which right. we will talk about in a few minutes. Um, but- We're going on to the stars of the show now. We're cracking into the top three, and these are the ones that that I think everyone's going to want to know the most about. I think Mm -hmm. we would agree. I
0: think that's right. And the first one we want to talk about at number three is Flowers versus Mississippi. Yes. This is a race in jury selection case, and it was made famous by a really popular true crime podcast called In the Dark. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have listened to that. It's it's really great, and it goes through the whole history of this case. The high court has to weigh the fate of one Mississippi man who was sentenced to death after six separate trials where the district attorney who was trying him systematically excluded African-Americans from serving on the jury.
2: Yeah. Well, let's talk about it a little more. I mean, the the I've gotten on my jury duty and jury selection soapbox a few sure. times. And, of course, that is sort of right at the... Uh, Right at the center of this whole thing. Let's talk about the yeah, facts. Yeah, that's the more. heart of this.
0: So, the backstory here is that Curtis Flowers, um, who, who himself is an African American man, was accused of murdering four people in a furniture store in 1996. There's a district attorney, Doug Evans, who has tried this man six separate times. Each time he's singled out eligible black jurors and removed them over the course of those various trials. And it's been Pretty clear what was going on there. So Evans used, they're called peremptory strikes, and he used them over and over again to get rid of black jurors. He struck 41 out of 42 potential African American jurors from serving over the course of these trials. Mm -hmm. Several of the convictions were even overturned because Evans was found to have violated the rule about not being able to use race to. to take that into account for these peremptory strikes. Mm -hmm. So, he's gotten in trouble over this before. Um, The big picture here is that the court has to decide if the history, all those previous five trials, really matters here. So, did the jury selection in that sixth trial violate the Constitution by itself, Mm -hmm. which is one way to look at this, or can the court also consider Evans' long history of eliminating potential African-American jurors from this jury
2: Right. Yeah. And what uh, I mean, what are the what are the implications we're looking at? I mean, it's like we 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 sort of know generally how important it is for it to have a fair and impartial jury. I Uh, think that's exactly
0: it. This is really about a fair and impartial jury. It's about how much you can look at uh, the the long history of some prosecutors, um, not just in trials against against one person because six against one man is very unusual. But can you look at a prosecutor's history in other similar trials, for example? Mm -hmm. So. Court watchers have, have largely agreed, after oral arguments, that the justices seem to be leaning toward Flowers, the, yeah. the convicted seem man. seem like
1: egregious facts. It
0: does. And and they ask a lot of questions to that effect. Um, the critical thing for Flowers is that Justice Kavanaugh indicated that he thought Evans's track record was a real problem. Mm. So that was um, the liberal wing of the court was already on the Flowers' side. And so with Kavanaugh, it seems like he's going to win. So if
1: they go that way, what does it mean going forward for the way that this sort of works?
0: Well, for Flowers in particular, I think that's what I'd like to, to leave people with, because if you listen to that, that In The Dark podcast, people were really invested in what's going to happen to this man. Um, so, for Flowers specifically, he would have this conviction overturned, but it doesn't mean he can't still be prosecuted. There's still charges against him based on this murder. So, this may be good to give more teeth to how we view prosecutors' use of these strikes, mm-hmm. but Flowers, could possibly face a seventh trial by the same prosecutor, Doug Evans.
1: Coming in number two on the list is one we've already mentioned, um, Gundy v. United States, which is the longest pending case uh, before the court, and um, one of the biggest ones. Um, It's a case about a a sex offender registry, this federal law that created it, but it's really way more about the separation of powers between the legislative and the executive branches and the ability of executive branch agencies to make and enforce regulations, similar to the case that Alex was talking about earlier. Definitely. Um, and, and obviously that has huge significance for, sure. for all the different things that those agencies regulate.
2: Yeah, the, the interplay of the branches of government is critical in this case because it deals with the questions of like when – Congress or sort of gives away authority that it has to the executive branch. You know what what exists in that vacuum. Right. Then, so let's let's walk through the, the facts again.
1: The, well, so what they did here was Congress created back in the two thousands. They created this um, federal sex offender registry, which civil liberties people have all their own sorts of concerns about. But sure. um, but uh, so they left certain aspects of the way that it would function, um, namely whether or not it would be retroactively, you know, it would, how it would apply retroactively. They left that to the DOJ, to the attorney general. They they said, you, that's for you to decide. Um, and, you know, a guy who was forced to sign up for this, this guy, Gundy, um, he says that that flexibility violated something that's known as the non-delegation doctrine, yes. um, which is a mouthful. Uh, it's that that rule sort of stands for the idea that uh, that only under the separation of powers, only Congress is supposed to write the laws, and they can't delegate that power. They can't give it to the executive branch. It's something that resides in the in the legislative under the Constitution, and the executive is there to enforce those. Laws. Yes, and so that by giving that flexibility to the DOJ, they were saying, here, look, take some of our. Of of the power that we're supposed to wield, and you get to use it.
2: I know this only because it's come up in a an also hot trade case, which you do, which we don't have time to talk about right now. But the idea, the the term of art there is that you can you can delegate your authority, but you must provide the executive branch with an intelligible principle. That hmm. is the uh, that is that is the key. Right. So it goes back to like the 1930s or something. Right. That that that's the precedent on that.
0: I mean, on the face of it, that all sounds really logical. Like, oh, sure, Did the the. Um legislative branch is the one that writes the laws that yeah. makes perfect sense mm-hmm. but in practice this has really big implications right
1: it does um because uh, sort of you know it's it, the implications are are go go beyond this because it's it you know it's a question of <laughs> it's almost like a question of history um the the non delegation doctrine hasn't really been used by courts in in like decades since the 1930s Um, it was most famously used uh, in the past to strike down aspects of fdr's new deal legislation which is you know sort of the birthplace of the modern regulatory state um Mm -hmm. so it you know I don't think it's hard for for listeners to see why, um, you know, why why liberals who are viewing this case, why, you know, who who obviously favor a a stronger regulatory state might be concerned that that a newly and sort of very conservative Supreme Court has now taken up this case that's about this age old legal doctrine that most famously is used to strike down federal regulations. Um, It's, uh, you know, and and that was clearly on the minds of the justices during the arguments. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer at one point wondered whether reviving this doctrine would put um, 300,000 similar regulations in jeopardy. And that that might be uh, a bit of uh, hyperbole, but it's that sort of gets to the point of why folks are watching this, that if you revive this doctrine it really does it gives a powerful weapon to um uh litigants who want to go after various forms of regulations they can say look you you left too much of this open and it it create it opens this whole door so there are ways for the court to be narrower than that obviously Mm -hmm. um and and everyone will be closely reading the ruling when it comes down um which you know as i've mentioned several times was way it was argued way back in october so we may you know Keep your eyes peeled. We may see this one on Monday, and uh, I don't know. Steve Kell, is it is it too glib to have drum roll?
2: I don't know. Is that is that is that cheesy? Nope, nothing. Getting nothing from them. <laughs> uh, anyway, number one. Uh, this was probably the number one case. Um, at, at the beginning of the term, when it was taken sure. up because of its stakes. But that uh, that changed even in the most recent weeks when it got another shot of intrigue, which we'll talk about in a second. But this is the Department of Commerce v. New York, better known as the case over the 2020 census and the citizenship question. It's a big one. The Trump administration um, decided last year to add a question to the upcoming 2020 census asking asking people who fill out the census, are you a citizen of the United States? And the question that is very plainly before the justices now is, were they allowed to do that? Uh, right. It's not uh, entirely clear. Um, this was a question that was on the census for many years, but got struck down. I believe it's sometime around the 1950s um, or something. Not, yeah. not, not, not struck down, but it, but it moved but to
0: removed, a, yes. a secondary, longer form thing that only went to a certain. And just to, right, yeah. know,
1: just to cut through, the, the, the reason why why the the people who are challenging this are concerned is because it will. You know, they're concerned that it will uh, it will change the political map. Oh it yes, will,
2: of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably should make probably should be clear about that. The census, of course, is more than just a headcount of the people who live in the United States. It is used to draw the political map, the number of you know seats you get in Congress sure. and things like that, also the allocation of billions of federal dollars for various programs, stakes are extremely high. Um, and
0: it will come as no surprise that the idea here is that it would depress the turnout not just of um, undocumented people, but also of other people living in mixed-status families, so lots right. of Hispanics are expected not to fill it out, and that would depress the count mostly for Democratic areas, right. big cities, that's,
2: that's That's sort of the whole thing here. There's a couple different questions and a couple ways that the court could go. Um, the first, as you're hitting at, Amber, is just whether it's plainly unconstitutional. Uh, the, the, the census provisions in the Constitution say you have to have an actual enumeration of the population every 10 years. Yep. And the idea, as you say, if the question as it's implemented um, has the likelihood of depressing responses from a certain, you know, portion of the of the, sit- of, the of the populace. Um, that will lead to an inaccurate count, and therefore you're not really fulfilling your constitutional obligation there.
0: And people at the Commerce Department itself and in the Census Bureau have said that they expect it to depress the turnout.
2: Yes, um, and that became even more explicit uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. But uh, the other thing that it could go, even beyond that constitutional question, and this is also relevant to what has come out, is... Um, is a sort of administrative law question that deals with the Trump administration's stated reasons for adding the question. What they've said, um, the Commerce Department, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, has said, we decided to add the citizenship question based on a recommendation from the Department of Justice. And the DOJ told us that having a citizenship question will make it easier for us to enforce the Voting Rights Act, right, to make sure that undocumented immigrants are not casting votes. Um, but when uh, the uh, state of New York and various uh, city governments and advocacy groups sued, some evidence came out, pretty pretty compelling evidence, that actually it was White House advisor Steve Bannon and close Trump aides who came up with the idea on their own uh, and then kind of concocted this DOJ recommendation after the fact. So there you're, you're, implement, you're, you're implicating an administrative law question about you know, you have to be transparent about why you make new rules and why you do new, uh, you know, executive branch decisions and things like that. Um, As I've said, the case was already filled with intrigue, given the stakes for the political map and all those other things. Um, But the lid basically blew off the entire thing late last month when uh, just, I I mean, it was like, if this was in a movie, you would say, it would like stretch the bounds of like a Perry Mason, like, you know, third act turn. Um, It's already pending before the justices and new evidence was presented in the lower court that um, the question, the citizenship question, as we know it, was actually the brainchild of this Republican operative fundraiser named Thomas Hoffler, uh, who passed away last year. Um, the evidence basically showed that uh, this guy Hoffler had conducted a study that found that adding the question would sort of boost the voting power of Republicans and depress the voting power of Democrats. Then worked with the Trump administration to get
1: it on the census. Right, that he had written part of the yeah. It was and the, uh, like you said the the drama of it that he, it was it was discovered by his daughter yeah, and his, she his yeah. like estranged
2: daughter who is like left leaning and yeah. like her, her her dad passed away and then she like handed this over to like some advocacy group introduced it into evidence. Um, so, you know, th- now I was talking to to, uh, to Nicole Narea who's been covering for us, the senior immigration reporter. And it's really interesting because now this is percolating at the lower court, this like sort of new evidence. And there's right. a question about... You know, typically the the Supreme Court doesn't hear new evidence. The whole idea is that the facts are sorted out, right. and we make the decision about. And
0: part of the reason we're in this weird position is that this case leapfrogged an intermediary level, and and so that's created its own set of problems. This
2: here. is the other thing because, uh, on a on a dif- with a different sort of question, maybe there will be time to send something back, uh, and you know, let's let let's let's litigate new facts, and then you can send it back to us. There's various routes they could take. But they are required by law to begin doing the cen- like to print the census forms this month in June. Like this, th- we need clarity on this question yes. immediately, and that's why we leapfrogged the whole appellate stage and all that stuff. So, um, if the stakes aren't clear to you now, I, maybe you turn the podcast off or something. But we, <laughs> uh, this is sort of a uh, it's it, it it it's a very politically divisive. The arguments were about cleanly split between the 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 liberals and conservatives on the court, um, and like you say, what hangs in the balance is. I don't know, the the next decade of electoral map drawing and federal allotment.
0: Guys, when we spend a week apart, we come back with an action-packed
1: show. I know. Uh, a whirlwind tour of the uh, of the final three weeks, which may themselves be a whirlwind tour.
0: I think that's very accurate. Um,
1: it may you. turn into a whirlwind final four weeks or something. Yeah. Or,
2: or <laughs> Well, who knows what's going to happen here. Because. Well,
0: thanks for helping me run it down for everybody, guys. Thanks a lot, Bill. Happy to be here. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Dave Simpson and Emma Cueto. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. We'd love it if you subscribe to the show and also leave us a written review. It helps other people find us. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, including that long rundown of Supreme Court cases, check out our website at law360.com podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.